Welcome to Kindred, hosted by me, Kate, and my sister, Jen. In this podcast, we explore our human relationship to the natural world. In connecting to this planet, we also connect to understanding, compassion, and empathy. How can we see ourselves not as separate or above animals in nature, but a critical and integrated part of an active ecosystem? Through conversations with animal advocates, scientists, conservationists, and many others, we look to inspire a new awareness of how and why we connect to animals and nature in order to repair and restore our relationship to the natural world. Hello, and welcome back to Kindred. Hello, sister. Hello, sister. How are you today? You look cute in your little camo hoodie. Oh, thanks. I'm cozy in here. It's sunny and warm and very chilly and blustery outside. So I feel oh. super cozy right now. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And I got my little doggy friends here. I know. Bluesy's here. All our partners. Yep. So can you believe this is our last drop for season three? I'm not sure it's how that happened. Really crazy, actually. Yeah. Oh, it went super, super fast. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is our last drop for season three. And just again, want to thank all of you listeners. Um, for being here and and to our guests you know what an incredible group of people we have been lucky enough to talk to i mean we talked about cats and insects and bird migration and chimpanzee rescue and plant intelligence and dogs and why they look like they do and grief and loss of pets and now this episode and it's been a lot it's been an incredible season for me i just got I don't know, it put me in a new space for sure, just in a different level of connection about understanding, you know, the depth of complexity with this world we live in. It's just been crazy. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it really was uh, um, just every time we do a new episode, just so much that we learn and so much that is uh, like sparked, you know, it just ignites some so much interest and and um enthusiasm for all of the people that are doing the work that they do yeah that's such a good way to put it it really does spark in enthusiasm and inspiration and you know it's it's just been incredible so thank you so much to everybody who who has been here for it all um so yes, I just wanted to do a couple shout outs about um, contacting us via our email if you want to at um, thekindredpod at gmail.com. And then for resources and links and show notes for all episodes, go to our website at thekindredpod.co. Um, and please share our episodes. You can text them, you can email them, talk to your friends about them. It really does make a huge difference for us. Um, and rate and review us. It's at the bottom of each episode and the reviews are huge for us. So just scroll down, hit those stars as many as you like. We like five, but four is totally cool too. So, you know, three, even any kind of review is actually helpful. Um, as far as Apple Podcasts is concerned, and they're one of our those uh, algorithms. Yeah, yes. I really like those. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. So, um, thank you in advance for doing that. So now to introduce you to our guest today, we are speaking with Tony Incasola Jr. and Stephanie Gillen, 
members of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, or CSKT, which we and they will reference, out of Montana. Our topic today is fire, and specifically in context to what it means to their tribes and what fire means to the land, to the environment, and an historical account of how fire has been used and the impact it has on the landscape today, specifically in, in uh, North America and Western um, U.S. So a little bio on our guests. Tony Incashola Jr. has a bachelor's degree in forestry from the Salish Kootenai College and currently works as the forest manager for CSKT, located on the Flathead Indian Reservation. And Stephanie Gillen is the information and education program manager for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes National Resource Program. She also has a degree in wildlife biology out of the University of Montana, and she too lives on the Flathead Reservation. We are so grateful for their insight and knowledgeable perspectives on um, fire and history. And, you know, the beautiful relationship fire has to its landscape and it's interesting, I can now see how when fire is in balance, it holds a power and wisdom that I was wholly unaware of until speaking with Tony and Stephanie. And they've really put fire in a whole new perspective for me. I see that in even a different way now. So really incredible conversation. So let's go to that conversation today with Tony Incachilla Jr. and Stephanie Gillen. See you at the takeaway. Steph and Tony, thank you so much for joining us at Kindred today. Um, we are really grateful for the conversation we know we're going to have, and we are grateful for your time. Um, could both of you just please introduce yourselves and tell us where you are located and what you do? Good morning, everyone. My name is Stephanie Gillen, and I am the Information and Education Program Manager for the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Natural Resource Program. Very uh, large mouth of words there. But um, I am also a former wildlife biologist for the tribe for 21 years, so uh, strong very strong culture, cultural connection within the um, uh, Mission Valley. So I live in Ronan, Montana, but grew up in St. Ignatius, Montana, born and raised on the Flathead Indian Reservation. And Tony, what about you? Hi, Heskaka. Uh, Good day, everybody. My name is uh, Tony Kasola Jr. Um, I'm a CSKT, uh, Confederate Salish Kootenai Tribal member. Uh, I was born and raised in St. Ignatius, Montana on the Indian, Flathead Indian Reservation. Uh, currently, I am the forest manager uh, for our tribe. Well, Montana, I've not been to yet. I I will, full disclosure, it is very high on my list. One day I hope to soon get there. I know it's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful state. Um, and Tony, could you describe the landscape where you are located in, in Montana? Sure. Uh, so, like I said, uh, we're located on the Flathead Indian Reservation, uh, which is between 
Missoula in, in Western Montana. It's in Western Montana between Missoula and Kalispell. Um, uh, we were located in the Mission Valley, which is at the base of the Mission Mountain Wilderness, which is part of the Rocky Mountain stream, stream uh -huh. of mountains through through the continental, uh, part of the continental divide. Um, the northern part of our reservation is the Flathead Lake with the Flathead River going through the middle of the reservation. Um, our valley floor sits about 3,000 feet elevation and our highest peaks are about 10,000 feet in elevation. Wow. Just shy of that. So uh, we're surrounded by mountains, um, good farmland, good unique uh, ecosystem here, here with uh, with uh, kettle ponds in the valley floor and, and, a, and a large, beautiful flathead lake. Uh, one of the large, the largest uh, uh, west of the Mississippi, so freshwater lake. How many acres is your reservation? I'm curious how big a space you're talking about. Uh, 1.3 million acres. Oh, wow. Beautiful. Okay, very large. I feel like you just painted such a beautiful picture, too. I felt like I was suddenly just sitting there. I could yeah. feel and smell. That was really beautiful. Um, yeah, that's big. That's big. Um, but Montana is so massive, too, so that makes sense. Um, so, Tony, could you lay us just a foundation to start us on the conversation? Could you explain to us what fire means to the Salish and Kootenai tribes? Uh, the Salish and Kootenai. Kootenai and Kootenai, tribes. sorry, I yep. apologize. Okay, Kootenai. So the Salish, Kalispell, and Kootenai tribes. Um, uh, fire, fire to our tribe means means lots of things. It means everything. Um, means new life. It means a uh, uh, cleaning tool. It means uh, pot, you know even to uh, a, a weapon. Um, you know defense. Um, you know, in our culture, we, we were brought up watching animals, learning from animals and watching nature and learning from nature um, and, and seeing how that affects what, what happens, the lifespan, the life cycle. Um, we would see fires, fires come in the area. We'd, we'd, they, would, they would study when it would happen, how it happened um, and, and what, would, what would happen, at, you know, afterwards. Uh, you know, and we started using fire. We, we in our tribe, we had a a firekeeper, a fire starter, uh, Squapam, um, and they were he was in charge of setting fires for certain reasons as we traveled. You know, our tribe was a, um, um, you know, our our Aboriginal territory is millions of acres in Western Montana, uh, Idaho, and Washington. Um, you know, you know, we're centralized now into. Uh, the Mission Valley originally were more centralized into the Bitterroot Valley, uh, and then we were moved from the Bitterroot Valley up to the Mission Valley. But fire to us is, has been a, a management tool mm -hmm. of some sorts. Uh, we we, ne we didn't have machinery or chainsaws or or right. vehicles, a uh, way to to manipulate the vegetation. Fire was our our tool to do that, and we've learned to and Squapam was in charge of of lighting those fires at certain certain times of years to uh help manage new growth help uh, uh clean areas for vegetation for berry production for our native foods um also for uh clearing trails uh traveling um and even uh forage for our livestock our horses you know and as i said even sometimes it was used as defense um you know of neighboring 
uh, neighboring tribes or, or, or whatnot. Um, so fire fire has been very intertwined with our culture as far back as, as we can remember. Um, is using that as a management tool uh, to better better our our way of life and better our our ecosystem um, here wherever we travel to. Well, thank you for laying that foundation because um, it's really critical for us to hear to hear that and and have a perspective to hear your perspective of that. And Steph, I want to go forward a bit um, to the point in time when the U.S. government began criminalizing controlled fire burning practices in Native communities and how that coincided with the the industrialization of logging. And what I want to focus on is how critically damaging this was to an otherwise, like you were saying, Tony, otherwise healthy ecosystem and how the lack of controlled burning set a course for a deeply out of balance landscape. can you talk to us about the history of when and why fire suppression suppression and the criminalization of traditional fire use began? We can, so to go forward, we have to go back, I guess, in a way. So talking about, you know, as Tony mentioned, you know, our Aboriginal territory was over 20 million acres. So we, we, you guys gasp at the 1.3 million acres, but originally our Aboriginal territory, because we were nomadic people, was over 20 million acres. So we traveled um, nomadically for food, for um, medicines, for roots, for berries. And so you know, for, and it all began in 1855. So it began in 1855 when our treaty um, of Hellgate was signed. And we are one of eight reservations within the state of Montana. Um, We are one of the most beautiful reservations within the state of Montana, uh, not to be biased, but um, we are set in a a very uh, nice location. Um, So it all began then. Um, It all began when the government, you know, took us out of that 20 million acre, 20 plus million acres of uh, land and forced us onto this 1.3 million acres. And actually, at that time, there were two reservations. As Tony mentioned, uh, the Bitterroot Salish were forced out of the Bitterroot Valley, and that reservation was 1.7 million acres. So we actually, within when our treaty was signed in 1855, we had two reservations, this 1.3 million acres in the north and 1.7 million acres in the south. And so what had happened, it took 36 years. Um, our bitter Salish had such a strong tie to that land. It took 36 years to move them out of that valley and onto our reservation today. And then that reservation was simply erased. Um, so it all begins there. Um, and, you know, from there, the uh, Flathead Allotment Act was passed. So originally the reservation was set aside for the exclusive use of our native people, our tribal people. And um, it wasn't until the allotment happened, you know, about 1908, 1909, where the government came in, they surveyed our landscape, they gave land to individual um, tribal households where we were not, the concept of owning land was not in our we did not understand the concept of owning land. We belong to the land. We, um, as Tony talked about, we are caretakers of the land. We improve that land for our future generations. So when that happened, um, 
and the Homestead Act, the Dawes Act happened and it allowed homesteaders to come in is when we started really seeing an effect. So we are allowed to practice our cultural practices or historical cultural practices and that included fire. Uh, when homesteaders came onto the reservation that excluded us that they took timber for houses. They took, you know, our wild game for food, which um, was a, a big hardship for, for us as, as Native people. Um, and that's when the government, you know, started. Then there was also huge fires of 1910, which uh, encompassed a lot of the area in our, our, our uh, Aboriginal territory. And so, and studies after that were done and they looked at areas where native people set fire to the landscape. And in some instances, those areas were burned less. They were, they were, um, you know, it wasn't as devastating as fires in other areas that, that were not controlled by native uh, people. Um, but <laughs> they, uh, because it was so devastating and, and, and railroads were starting fires to get, to get the railroad through. So there was so many people starting fires um, for other reasons other than the tribe. But just to see the devastation of that um, and turning in fire into being a bad thing and you know getting away from our cultural views as fire is a positive thing, um, as Tony mentioned, for so many reasons um, for food for, you know, wildlife for, um, it's just so beneficial to our, our culture. Um, and to be told we can't do that anymore. Um, and, and for centuries, like it took centuries for us to be able to say, wait a minute, this is part of our culture and put it back into our, uh, management practices as Tony has done. So just to go back a little bit for the so the 1910 fire seemed to be a very critical shift and it seems like um the settlers please correct me if I'm wrong on this the settlers may have seen it as oh my gosh look at all these fires this is bad we need to double down on no fire like an absolute con fire control and your community was like Wait, hold on a second, because if we just look back, you know, if we're looking at 9, 10, 1910, if we look back 10, 20, 50 years, we can track why we are having such bad fires at this point. Is that accurate? So so culture burning, culture practices happened prior to 1910. And then right. prior, you know, even prior to that, when when settlers or 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 uh, Western Westerners started moving into our Aboriginal territory, that's when the U.S. government started uh, banning lit fires, and yeah. so that was even prior to 1910. Mm -hmm. Even prior to the the, the Lawman Act, um, mm -hmm. there there was a ban on lighting fires, and so there was already, you know, half a century of of missed, uh, you know, indigenous fires starting uh, throughout that time period. So the landscape was already in that shift of change, and fuels were already building up uh, prior to 1910. Right. And that's where I, and I'm, I'm just hitting this point home because I think it's really critical. This, this, this uh, one, one of these moments in time where, and Steph, you were saying that with the, um, the train lines coming through, they were building fires, part of that building system. So that's starting these fires that people probably didn't know quite how to control. And at the same time, um, you know, going, it's just, it's actually this, this kind of two worlds of fire are sort of coming together. 
Um, and I think it's a, an important thing to sort of hit home. It, it was. And, and like I said, they looked at it. The government looked at it and looked at different sections like like Tony had talked about. You know, we've done this for centuries, you know, for you know, generations, fire was started and they looked at areas after those big fires and, you know, saw that there was less damage, uh, but still, um, you know, deemed fire as very destructive and very, you know, and so that was the ban of it. And they, they thought of it as a waste, a waste of uh, fuels, a waste of timber, uh, where they could be making money on that timber, where fire, you know, Rather than a healthy, healthy ecosystem, I think it was, you know, probably money driven. That's what I was wondering when you were saying it was around the time that timbering started. It's like, oh, this is about money. And, yeah. you know, how many times does somebody in in a p powerful position say, ah, it's all bad? You know, it's just black or white, which drives me crazy about um, the powers that be. It's it's never barely ever black or white. It's like, yeah. well, we actually know what we're doing. And and that must have been so frustrating. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And I was gonna, yeah, I was gonna bring up that with Steph. Uh, it, you know, as she mentioned it, with the railroads, that's when it really took off as a ban. You know, yeah. ownership of land was it, but then railroads saw instead of letting those 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 that timber burn you know the railroads were put in here to harvest that timber initially through our reservation right. um you know obviously it was that and passengers but uh the timber market around that time uh was was booming around here of of, of building a railroad to access the timber uh, yeah. and move it off and really it was a a lack of knowledge of of the fire ecosystem uh in western united states at that point you know most of the settlers were coming from the east and not understanding that this is a fire dependent ecosystem mm -hmm. which is going to have large catast catastrophic fires and it's going to have small uh non-catastrophic fires also but to understand that you know uh the top of these these mountains uh that that high fire regime is going to have devastating fires every 100 to 300 years uh, you know that's just the natural occurrence of it you right. can't you can't keep that ecosystem in, in that area um the same as you can on the valley floor that's just it's not healthy that way so fire natural fire is a healthy part of the ecosystem and 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 the lack of knowledge of that from westerners when they moved over here is what really started that well, it's interesting because that's going to be my next focus with you, Tony. But just going back one second, it's like Jen and I were like, oh, my gosh, 1.3 million acres. And I kind of know from being out west en enough that actually there, there are now ranches that are hundreds of thousands of acres. It's just that a west, like I would say our east coast perspective and maybe east coast and white perspective are conjoined here um, from Jen and I that like. We are like, oh my gosh, that's so much land. You're like, yeah, no, not really. Um, but moving forward, Tony, this is like what you were just talking about. Like walk us, I think it's the perfect time to talk about how fire keeps the landscape in balance. Because like you were saying, in my very limited perspective, I often do think of forest fires as raging infernos, which I see as bad for people and insects and flowers animals, new growth plants, like we were talking about. Um, so how does controlled burning 
keep them in balance. Talk to us about the land management and what healthy ecosystem combined with traditional fire use looks like then. So, so yeah, like I was saying, you know, the Western, Western Montana and Western United States is a fire dependent ecosystem. Um, it's a natural, natural process in, in our ecosystems, you know, as, as something different than maybe on the coast where you have, you know, very wet, uh, wet areas where fire is not very dominant in that area and um, trees and ecosystems and habitats go to that climax of species uh, and stay there. Uh, right. You know, our, our habitat, our wildlife, native wildlife, our native plants are based on different um, structures and patterns within an ecosystem to, to be able to stay in balance. And so plants thrive, certain plants thrive on after fire, certain plants thrive in more dense canopy, but there has to be a balance of each of them within our ecosystem to support not only the plant community, but the animal community and, and us. And so our tribe recognized that immediately, uh, you know, after learning from, from the animals and learning from um, watching fire is that there needs to be a balance of that. And so, you know, there's there's been studies of, of, of seeing areas of where our tribe has gone through and fire intervals have jumped from a, a natural of five to 15 years to a one to seven years of fire intervals to keep that landscape at a healthier certain stage. Even our higher elevation, uh, we've, we have studies finding where we've burned uh, to help huckleberry production in that oh. higher elevation. Mm. So looking at it nowadays, reverting that back to nowadays, um, you know, our part of our task now, you know, after we've compacted, our tribe compacted in 1995, the forestry program where we took it back from the BIA and, and compacted means uh, take control over our, our actions. Uh, okay. managers. And so we're able to decide what we want to do here. Um, and the biggest part of that is, is we wanted restoration. We wanted to restore this land back to what we, we stated as pre-European contact. And so that's our forest management goal. And the biggest part of that, the only way to do that is returning fire to the land, is bringing fire back to this ecosystem dependent uh, land base. And so, you know, now, now comes the hard part of, of taking Western science and intertwining traditional and ecological knowledge and so we have to, we took a long, we, we took a long time talking with our elders, uh, looking at studies, um, doing core samples of, of our forests, seeing those fire intervals where fire was, bringing elders on field trips, looking to see, talk with them and say, what did this landscape look like before? What did your grandparents say this landscape was used for? You know, and if they said it was used for camas or something else, and you go there now and there's not one camas plant there's not one anything there anymore and so knowing okay that's what the, the past was how do we use western science now and apply western science techniques to get to that point uh, so obviously there's mechanical treatments that we have to do now but but our end product is returning fire back to the land prepping the land um you know the the, the land base right now is so much different than it was prior that we can't just bring fire back to any piece of our land and, and think that it's going to restore it. 
we have to do it in steps now. We have to do mechanical treatment. We have to do uh, a thinning treatments. We have to do some sort of way to prep it to where it's suitable now that when we return fire to the land, it's not going to be damaging. It's going to be helpful. It's going to keep low intensity ground fires that are going to rejuvenate as, as opposed to destroy. And so uh, that's what we're doing now. And, and, and returning, doing our, our prescribed fire, our prescribed burns have multiple different uh, objectives. You know, some of them are wildlife objectives, the return forage. Some of them are native plant restorations. Some of them are just to to reset the, the site up to a more, using Western science terms, cereal plant species. So yeah. bringing it back to uh, taking it out of that climax to where it could be a uh, multi-story, multi, multiple use area now for, for not only us, but for animals and plants. So in that specific area, like I'm trying to think of an example, like, so are you saying basically let's take insects or something? Is there an example where there are certain types of species that really are only kept in balance by fire practices? Yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of our lowland um, ponderosa pine sites, which is a ponderosa pine is a fire adaptive species. Okay. Um, and when we have intervals, fire intervals, prescribed fires within those areas, it, it thrives that habitat type. And so what we're doing is restoring it back to a habitat type, not restoring it back to a structure that, that is appeasing by, by human eyes. We're restoring the plant community and the habitat of where it's supposed to belong to. And so when we, we, we go to an area and recon, you, it might be full of, of certain species um, but there's remnants of those cereal species that, that identify what that original habitat is. And what we're doing is restoring it back to that original habitat. Now, do you feel like in 50 to 100 years, if these practices are restored, can you get there? It's a million dollar question. Huh? <laughs> there, there's so many more variables now. You know, when we wrote that plan in 2000, um, uh, we finalized that plan in 2000. We, we started writing it in 90, 1996, uh, or actually prior to we compacted in 92, I think. Um, and it took eight years to understand a concept and try to try to intertwine, you know, our our traditional values, our traditional ecological knowledge into Western science. It's never been done before. Yeah. And so um, it took us a long time to write that. And and the way we set it up was. We broke our landscape into, you know, what I said before, fire regimes, you know, uh, low intensity to all the way to the top of the mountains where it's uh, catastrophic fires. That's just the natural regime. And right. then try to figure out a a, a, a balance, a, a budget of different what we call cereal clusters within those areas uh, that is allowable or, or, or natural, you know, pre-European contact. Right. Um, and, you know, our game plan was to have it done uh, or, or be close to it within 86 years is what we, you know, our model and our, and our rotation and what we thought we could do was been 2086. Um, right now we're doing a revision of that in 2020, since 2020. Um, and, and there's more variables now than there ever was. Uh, climate change is one of them. Right. Um, and, and climate change ownership, uh, with the fragmentation of our our lands, not only not only from uh, 
outside ownership, uh, internal, even tribal member ownership, um, can we fully restore the landscape without with with only being able to manage what we can manage? Um, well, right, because like you're saying, you're one point something million, but like you can only do then you're only working within the boundaries that you're able to work with. Yeah, so our tribe owns, we own about 60% of our land base now, and we do work hard at trying to uh, purchase properties as often as we can within the reservation and within our Aboriginal territories, you know, but, uh, you know, like you drew our attention to earlier and asked, there are still outsiders coming in, you know, um, and land can still be sold on the reservation. And it's, yeah. It's a great place to live. So come visit, but don't move here. Don't stay. Yeah. <laughs> that's our you motto. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's such an interesting thing that made me think when you were talking too, both of you was, so do you feel like this, this is probably an unanswerable question. Like there's so many catastrophic fires in the West. You know, we see them all the time and they just burn, burn, burn and days and weeks and millions of people or whatever. It just seems like, do you hope slash believe that this can be something that people can start applying uh, more in a bigger scale? Or is this just you guys have such particular knowledge that people like us would never be able to manage that <laughs> no it's it's definitely something that that other people or other agencies are, are trying to acknowledge and trying to apply now and I, and I always joke that you know western science is finally catching up to, to traditional ecological knowledge yeah exactly. oh, for sure. that's, that's it's what it is it's finally catching oh absolutely up. yeah um, absolutely. and i i work with uh, you know the intertribal timber council uh, which is a, a combination of tribes na nationally um, and, and a lot of us in the Northwest and, and, you know, we work with the Forest Service, BLM, um, other agencies, uh, now to, to apply, uh, our, our knowledge and our, and partnerships in lands on a landscape base instead of, you know, some reservations aren't as big as ours even, uh, where we can work within whole watersheds, um, and, and do treatments and apply treatments that way. Uh, other reservations are more fragmented even more um, and, and have to work with outside partners to, to be able to treat a landscape. And so what, even what we're doing more locally is we work with, Fly, you know, Flyhead National Forest, Logo National Forest, uh, the Nature Conservancy, BOM, uh, and we're doing landscape size treatments on and off the reservation now uh, with, with our input and, and our help. To, to, to apply fire back to a lot of these uh, Aboriginal territory lands. That's yeah, great. And I think that's an important, you know, as far as, you know, Tony and I went to Western colleges, you know, I mean, we, we went and got our degrees to come back to work for our tribe. And that's one thing, you know, my grandmother, my yaya always told us, you know, go get your education, go get your education, but don't forget who you are. So I think yeah. that's a big part of us, you know, combining, yeah. the western world world with our cultural ways and you know a big part of with a tony talking about um the forest management plan you know and he talked about i mean it was made up of our elders um and all of our natural resources programs so it's you know it's it's meant to be for teamwork for everyone to work together you know to um 
you know, manage that different area the best we can for whatever species. So yeah, I just think it's a, it's a very important concept. Absolutely. And I think that's where the power of that and, and that, that force of that understanding of taking that, um, you know, the knowledge that you have in your brains. Now you have both, you have both knowledge and the power to, if you can have the space and the resources to execute that. Um, and with the 2086 kind of plan, maybe in the next hundred years, things can really start to shift. I'm going to, you know, let's keep that positive flow. Um, one thing I do want to just hit quickly is that, you know, two things like from Jen and our perspective on the East coast, we have, the vine issue here is just out of control. Everything is covered with vines. And so if I think about fire practices that you guys are talking about applied here, the amount it would take to do controlled burning, it would, what we would have to clear out to even get to these points. So the time is just a huge time amount. And then, um, and then not only like you were saying, and I do want to hit this home again, which is, or highlight this point, Steph, that really hit me is that you were saying, and you've said it again, that my perspective from an East Coaster was that reservations were only allowed for Native Americans, for Natives, for Indigenous communities. And you're like, yeah, nope. And I, I could go to your reservation and buy land. And um, I think that's, the other, the other challenge, just one other challenge that I think um, exists in, in your community. I really think that's important for people to hear. Um, but Steph, on what you were talking about before, I'd like to talk about your outreach programs. And if, if you would talk to us about how you are educating your community and others about traditional fire practices and land management, which Jen was kind of touching on, what is your, what are those programs? And I guess what is your main focus or message if there, if there is one? Yeah, so definitely education is the key. You know, education is the key for the new people coming onto the landscape. Um, educating them that they are on the reservation, hoping that re they respect, you know, the land that they're on and our, you know, cultural ways and values, um, which, you know, can be, can be a, a, a challenge, but definitely educating and, you know, first and foremost, our native youth, our native or our uh, surrounding communities um, about, you know, where we live. I mean, we all know we live in a beautiful place, but just the variety of wildlife, the variety that we have here, educating them um, on that and, you know, knowing that we're a voice for them, knowing that it's up to us as caretakers to preserve or to work with this land, to understand that connection, reconnecting them to wildlife, reconnecting them to um, our forests, reconnecting them to our land. You know, us as native people, that was first and foremost who we were, you know, we don't own it, we belong to it. So um, with fire, you know, we definitely have the which is amazing the returning fire to the land that tony is in it's a short seven minute video that you know i definitely you can search it you know on on the web and find it it's a very good uh, video about um, us as tribal people on the reservation and our relationship with fire we also have a um 
a interactive educational um, curriculum that is uh, that's fire on the land and it's for teachers. It's it was developed by you know my predecessor and and an amazing uh, person who's who's worked with us for years and it's it's gives a tribal it's called um, fire on the land CSKT um, a tribal perspective. So um, not only do both of them talk about fire um, management on the reservation, but they reintroduce, it's, it's, it talks about the reintroduction of fire within our management program, you know, when it's been gone for exclude, excluded for over a century. Um, but as a wildlife biologist, um, you know, we talk about different things who, different animals who have that relationship with fire. Uh, we've done blackback woodpecker studies, and what we do is we visit places who recently were on fire. Um, you know, fire attracts different wildlife at different times, and the blackback woodpecker—it's hard to say—is <laughs> attracted after fire. After fire um, hits the landscape, um, we work with our fire as on the wildlife uh, standpoint too. Uh, we have an amazing landscape that has not been touched uh, and tilled up and reseeded for agricultural purposes. And that's owned right now by the wildlife program um, and is a really amazing habitat for waterfowl. So what we do is we work with our wild, uh, our fire program, our file, and we put fire through there, you know, every so many years we alternate our fields and that native bunchgrass community thrives with that. So we do manage um, with fire, you know, in a very, uh, and see, you know, good results with that. Um, so I think definitely educating the community, but first and foremost, our people, reconnecting our people to, to our traditional ways, our traditional values, um, and then educating our community, which helps us be stronger um, yeah. and definitely educating the, new newcomers to our well, area. Well, that's like, that's like you were saying before, before we go forward, we need to go back. Yeah. And I think that's, um, that's a critical, that's a critical point to make. Um, and, I, go ahead, Tony. And, and just to, you know, the add to Steph, you know, um, you know, the biggest part of, of our forest management, like I said, was bringing fire back to the land. And one of the first things we did is, is we did a fire history project, which, you know, out of that was built that curriculum for for teaching fire on the land uh, of the of our tribe. And if you think about it, you know we've lost a generation, a couple generations of of that knowledge before we started this practice again. And so yeah. it was not only educating ourselves; it was learning from elders and educating our own tribe on fire is good. And yeah. that was a huge movement of, mm -hmm. of re-educating our tribe after multiple generations have never seen us, never yeah, seen yeah. us start fires. Um, right. and, and, and teaching our tribe and our community that, hey, applying fire back to the land is a good thing. It's something our tribe used to do. Right. Uh, it used to be a, an active practice. Um, and then, you know, after, you know, we still have large fires here. We still have large fires nearby. You know, and and it's it was a hard thing to educate people and 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 have them buy into, you know, after a summer full of smoke, 
what's our first thing we're doing in the fall? We're lighting more fires, you know, right. for prescribed fires. It was a yeah. it was a hard thing for a lot of people to understand or yeah. or or get behind. And you know, and same thing in the spring. Um, but but seeing that that effect now, uh, we've had large fires off the reservation and on the reservation that move and they hit our treatments and they stop. Where we've treated the land with with fire, it, it stops and it comes to the ground and we can catch the fire there. So what we're doing now, our practices now are limiting um, large fires capability in a lot of our areas. Yeah. Right. And I think that's so much of why you're, that's part of the balance. Um, but just going back to what you're saying too, Tony, is that the elders are not always going to be there or to be here. So you also have limited time to get these programs going and to get the knowledge from your elders so that you lose even less of what you've already lost. Like you're saying, you know, generations, centuries of, of, of knowledge, um, yeah. So when we did this part, started this project, we did tons of interviews. Right. Uh, you know, and we're lucky that that both the Salish and the Kootenai have culture committees in, in, and they have elder advisory groups. And within those, they've they, they've have recordings since the 70s, 60s and 70s of our elders telling stories, talking about places um, of everything and anything, because we never knew what would, was would be pertinent and it's all, it's all important right. uh, you know, hearing those stories from our elders and they have large archives uh, you know of the stuff and and so when when there's a question of our generations don't know now there's a resource to go back and check on of what what past elders that have passed away knew yeah. about this landscape or knew about management or knew about the way of our life Right. Which and then, takes time, though, right? It takes time to go back and listen to all that information and dig through it. You have to do some real research. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's right. And like and knowing that, like you were saying, Steph, those woodpeckers that I will not say again, but that that, you know, like, oh, these woodpeckers are back here, which I didn't even think of what 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 species. um are supported by the after effects of the burning, like this woodpecker. You got it to say it one more time. Give us the name. <laughs> you have to say it slow. Black-backed woodpecker. Black-backed woodpecker. Okay, I will not say it again. But that to me is like this, The it's the other side of that. And then, and that's also like learning that knowledge, which I never even thought about of like, okay, well your elders can say, well, when I was five, I'm now 90. This is what we used to see before and then after the fire and that knowledge then how can you then implement that um is just so critical mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and definitely we give credit to our culture committees and our ancestors and our elders for passing on this information you know we used to be an oral history tribe, you know, where you pass it down from generation to generation. But when our culture committees, as as Tony talked about, were formed, you know, in the mid 70s, uh, all that was, you know, they really worked on recording and videoing and, uh, you know, <clears throat> capturing that knowledge and that historic, the historical knowledge uh, within our tribes. So it's definitely a lot of it was in our native language as well. So there would have to be interpreters to to um, you know, tell us what they're saying in in, wow. in our native language. So that was pretty pretty important. Um, 
So I'll ask both you this question. If I were to say, how can we support you? Um, is that the right word or question? Is there a better or different language we can use to more accurately align with the best we can with the work you're doing today? You know, the conversation I have with a lot of people, you know, especially that move on a reservation, um, you know, outsiders that move on a reservation and, and, you know, we have a very active fire management program and forest management program that does like home site and, uh, you know, site visits and assessments, you know, for really wildlife and urban interface stuff, uh, areas. And a lot of conversation I have with people is, is, is they want to change the way the landscape is to suit them, as opposed to understanding that where they live um, is an ecosystem and, and you should be changing your your styles or your ways to suit where you've moved to um you know and and, and with that you know understanding if you move into a, a wild a more wilderness area trees area that that fire is part of the ecosystem um and any any help you can do with that is either either by improving your defensible space around your house to reduce reduce fire coming to your place but also a, a big thing we're seeing is reducing that risk of a fire starting at your place, moving into our lands, our wilderness, our ecosystems. Um, I think that's that's one big thing that a lot of communities need to do to help is reduce that. They don't see it. They don't see that. They see the risk of fire coming to them. Um, but we're the catcher's mitt when a fire happens on your land um, or in your area. It comes to to our area. Uh, you know, and if they can improve that defensible space, uh, more the better. And it's just education um, and and educate yourself on, on where you live and in Western Montana, this ecosystem and how it is fire dependent and and reach out to your, your, your national forest, your your whatever agency that, that manages the land base where you live and understand and, and learn and see what you can do to help uh help with some of those projects um you know there's a lot there's a lot of uh pushback still of, of prescribed burning because of the smoke we see in the summer um and not understanding that smoke smoke in springtime smoke in the uh late fall is good smoke as opposed to smoke in the summer um, but supporting those groups and those agencies and those uh that are trying to do that restoration work uh, within those areas is, is the best way they can help. And I say respect, like respect always comes back to, <clears throat> and it can fall under so many things, you know, like Tony had talked about, you know, respecting the land you live on, respecting the wildlife, you know, in your area. And it's so amazing to me, wildlife management being in it for so long, you're not wild, you're not managing wildlife, you're managing people to, <laughs> coexist with wildlife and respect wildlife because you are in their habitat. So that is the biggest thing is respect, respect for the land, respect for the people, uh, respecting us for what we do. We are educated, you know, tribal members, we are educated people. And, and a lot of the time it's us proving ourselves to people <clears throat> when we shouldn't have to, you know, we, 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 um, yeah, just respect. Yeah. And it sounds like a little bit what you're saying is it's just that thing of 
Um, it's respect, absolutely, and 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 a combination with education. Knowing where you're walking, what space are you entering? What space are you walking into? And understanding that, connecting to that before you even bring yourself into that space. Um, and I I I love that. I, it's it's exactly right. And um, yeah, I'm. I'm lost now. I'm just thinking so much about that, you know, and I think that is, um, there's an honor. There's, there's a, um, it, it really is. That's what we're trying to talk about here too. in the podcast is that you are within an ecosystem. You are not on it or above it. And that goes for, and, and like you say, have respect for the people who are there that you're walking into. And um, that's, and ask questions first, ask questions and be be interested in what's already happening there. Um, any last thoughts from either of you? I think the only thing I would, I would wanna add would, would be, you know, anybody, wherever you live, you know, the, our tribe, Indian people, tri there's a tribe anywhere, everywhere. You know, if, if you want, you want to support, support, support that local tribe and their actions that, mm -hmm. like I said, traditional ecological knowledge is just now getting uh, recognized, you know, mm -hmm. you know, before it was, it's, it's Western science only, you know, of, you know, it, unless you knew Western science, you don't know what you're talking about. You know? Right. And so I think, I think there's a lot of ways people can learn from any tribe and in, in any, any area. You know, our tribal practices are different than than the California tribes, you know, the Yurok and, and, and anyone down there, right. you know, and the way they manage their landscapes suits that landscape, you know. And I think if, if people reach out to their tribal communities nearby, um, they can learn a lot more about where they live and, and how to to do environmental safe practices wherever, on whatever they whatever they do. Absolutely. That's a that's a great point and a really great reminder. And um, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you both. Um, be well, and um, hopefully we can talk to you. Uh, you know, before twenty eighty six to see how this is going. Let's all let's all stick around a little a little longer. Hopefully we can uh, keep listening and learning and combining the knowledge that we all have and working together. So thank you so much for joining us and Lemelich for having us. Thank you guys. Hey guys, welcome back to The Takeaway. Um, many thanks again to Tony and Steph for a really insightful, deeply insightful and mind-changing, perspective-changing conversation. Um, Jen, we're both so grateful for this, aren't we? So thank yes. you, to you to you both. And um, one of the my main takeaways was really kind of started with when Tony was talking about being raised watching animals in nature, right? And learning from them and seeing them and these life cycles and being taught about this, these cycles and how fire works and, um, you know, from his elders and then how he talked about that this area of Mo Montana as fire dependent and, 
and about the fire, the balance that fire brings to this specific landscape and ecosystem. And then also, you know, what I hadn't thought about is what species are affected before and after fire occurs. And and so what it did was it really put fire in a whole new context for me. Like, like now to me, it feels like a living thing or a species almost that operates not unlike a keystone species that we've talked about before, right? Um, protecting and balancing their environment and ecosystems. And, and that has completely shifted my perspective. And, you know, we've sat around many campfires and, and you, you watch fire and you listen to it and you feel it. It does feel living in, in, in a very real way. Um, so that was huge for me. I really, I'm changed completely. So, and then Steph was um, talking about how the US government then saw controlled burning in forest as a waste of timber and missing the whole point that fires, sorry, forests aren't there for consumerism or profit, right? And also fire isn't an accident. And the forests are there to support wildlife and create oxygen for every breathing thing. And maybe, you know, all they ask in return is to not cut them all down. Um, and Tony and Steph talked about how there are fire resistant species of trees. And so it's all in balance and, or at least it could be. Right. So what, what, what was your, what was your main takeaway? So my overall, I've just really been sitting with it because I I definitely also feel very um, altered in a good way. Uh, just my perspective has been shifted uh, a lot by the conversation and just really trying to get my head around what about this seems so um, profound. And a lot of the stuff you were talking to is part of it and also though i did i had the um sort of the awareness that this is this now the second time that i've talked to a native american person someone who grew up with this this is their way of life and um just when they were talking about um like everything like the from the mass of land that they have to the whole um process of timbering and trying to get fire back into their um, culture be legally able to interact with it. Um, what I what I had the awareness of is that it's kind of like um, I feel like I was those settlers that they're dealing with, like coming from the east, like no understanding of the sort of the the depth and the breadth of their experience and their land and their way of life. And like you were saying, Tony said it's a fire dependent um ecosystem out there like it might not be that for here and all these people were coming from the east they right. didn't know but the only thing that's um i think better now is that some of us are starting to want to listen and back yeah. then nobody was listening or and nobody was asking questions and you had referred to that in the in the interview too it's just like trying to be respectful and and ask the questions that rather than just coming in assuming you know everything. So it just felt like, I, I felt like a little microcosm of the whole thing that they were talking about. And, mm -hmm. um, and, and 
the only reason it's different now is because things have shifted because of the, I think, the indigenous people saying, look, we are not just going to sit here and let our yeah. whole culture go away because that's more convenient for you people. I yeah. guess that was sort yeah. of my big takeaway was just like, I feel like, wow, okay. And, and like in so many things, the greater conversation of that is our responsibility as white people to start to educate ourselves, to ask questions in a respectful manner and um, in a yeah. way that that precludes the fact that we actually know that there's there's power here and we're trying to be understanding and respectful. No, Jen, you're you're totally right. And I think that it's, and you were saying before when you and I were talking how the East Coast perspective, like you were saying, is so different from the West Coast perspective. And, you know, and that's okay that it's different. It's just, you know, and 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 I think the the other thing is that you were you you sort of touched on really what we're talking about here is Western science and thinking and indigenous knowledge coming together right. and we can respectfully come together, introduce ourselves, ask questions and and learn from each other. It, we really can work together. And Western medicine isn't bad. It's just been often utilized as a tool for power and economics, right? And I think where, you know, if we look back even at our, our interviews past, we've, this isn't the first time we've also heard this, right? We talked, when we talked to Kate Stafford in episode 11 about the bowhead whales, she spoke in depth about the knowledge she gained from the Inuit people, right? Mm -hmm. And she couldn't have her science without their indigenous knowledge. Right. And the same with, um, the same with Monica Gagliano in episode 24, where, and we didn't get totally into this, but her book does, um, Thus Spoke the Plant, where she's gained a lot of her knowledge from indigenous people and their deep connection and understanding to the natural world and to plants and to trees. So I think, and I think things, it is changing, which is which is great. But like you said, we just need to keep doing our work and keep listening and keep coming together. So and keep having the conversations. That's the thing. These conversations are. Yeah, that's a huge part of it because you don't know what you don't know. That's right. No, for sure, for sure. So, and in that and in that note, thank you so much to to Willa Palace, who we talked to before, and to. Um, to Tony and, and Steph this time, you know, just that they're willing to share the knowledge that's always been there. We're just like, oh yeah, sorry, just woke up. So right. let me just get some information 300 years later. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yes. Yeah. So um, very grateful to them and grateful for all you guys listening. Um, your support and listenership is huge. It's really kind of why we're doing this too also i mean it's it's for us specifically or maybe me i forced you to do this but um it's it really is you know thanks to you guys that we can all join this bigger conversation that you were actually talking about jen so yes um thank you everybody we'd love to hear from you um if you want to email us at thekindredpod at gmail.com, please do. We'd love to hear your, your thoughts, your reactions, your, your questions, your agreements, your disagreements. Um, and don't forget to go to the website um, for, 
further resources at uh, kindredpodcast.co and take a minute to go watch the YouTube video that um, Tony did with other people. It's called Returning Fire to the Land. It's about 11 minutes or something like that. And I, I, I think it's seven, seven minutes. minutes. And I wanted to watch uh, an hour of it. It was just beautifully yeah. done and it's it's really lovely. So please check that out. Um, so that's in the, all those sort of things will be on the on the website. Um, and again, thanks for another great season. We loved this season. We loved our conversations. Um, thank you, Jenny, for being here with me and chatting it all through. And um, sure. we will see you guys in season four and we will be in touch about when season four will be dropping. So take care, have a good rest of your winter and we will see you in the spring. Bye. Lots of love. Kindred is hosted by me and my sister, Jen. Produced by Kat Gaddy and myself. Sound production and editing by Dan Cooper. Original music by Ellie Grace. And our Kindred artwork was created by Lindsay Coffin. Please follow, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And feel free to contact us through our website at kindredpodcast.co, where you can also find links to our socials, Patreon page, and show notes.